welcome to This Girl Can, where we chat to wonderful women doing fabulous things in pharma. I'm Liv Nixon, and today I'm talking to Noreen Sajwani, Head of Consulting at Impatient Health. From the first time I chatted with Noreen, I was thoroughly captivated by her and the way she speaks so articulately about her choice to join the pharmaceutical industry, her religion, the different cultures she's experienced, and the choices she's made about her lifestyle today. I loved every second of our conversation. The minutes flew by, and you may well have noticed that this is a longer episode than normal. I make no apologies for this, as what Noreen has to say is so important and so impactful, it absolutely justifies the time. So let's get going. Good morning, Noreen. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Very well. Welcome to the UK. Exactly. (laughs) Welcome to the UK before I go to Lisbon to then come back and then go back to Bali. So yeah, welcome from all around the world, really. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks so much for making the time to do this interview with me. I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to chatting to you. So... Let's get into this. So, Noreen, what I want to do today is really get to know a little bit about you and your journey to date. So to help us do that, can you please, in your words, give me an overview of your story to date? But go back right to the start. Start with your your days in education, if you don't mind, because it's fascinating and there's a lot to get into. For sure. No, super happy to. I guess I will go back to the day that I was born. We could go forever a days back, but I was born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia. So I am American and I grew up in in the South in a post 9-11 world, which obviously was for a young Muslim, an eight-year-old Muslim girl at the time, so now I'm giving away my age. That was an interesting time to grow up in the South. And I really... To be honest, I really enjoyed growing up just with my family. I've got an older sister and and my parents, but my parents were classic immigrant parents. So it was very, came to America, worked in factories, had about $5 and married to their significant other for about three months. And that was the world that I grew up in. And that was what I knew. And I I think a lot of people from my generation talk about the impact that 9-11 had on them and as I said, being a young Muslim girl, I wasn't really any different. But I always grew up with this, do I talk about my religion? Do I not talk about my religion? And it always sat with me. So you have kind of that cultural side of me. And then you've got the the kid of the immigrant parents and you must succeed. You must get educated. You must do all the things and find the right sort of career path that lets you to being successful, as is the American dream. So my mom was, my mom likes to say that she was always very open to letting me do whatever I wanted in the medical field. So there was always <laughs> that, that little caveat. And my sister actually, just by, by whim, ended up going into nursing school. She became a nurse and now she's a nurse practitioner. So she works as effectively a doctor in California. And because I had no idea what else I could do, I said, okay, fine, I'll be a nurse as well, but I like math. So what do I do about that? My sister was like, oh, a nurse anesthetist you'll become. So I applied to what was one of the best nurse anesthesia programs in the United States. By the way, nurse anesthesia is a master's program. I didn't know what I was getting myself into when I did this. Applied to to university at Georgetown where I went and got there summer before I started, I went, I don't want to do nursing. I have to do a four-year nursing degree in order to be able to become a nurse anesthetist. And my sister had basically swindled me into doing this in the attempts of being like, math, you love math. This is what you'll do. Anyways, my sort of school of nursing and health studies had four majors at the time. Nursing was one of them. Human science was another, which was more of a bio basically pre-med track. And then there were two others, international health and healthcare management and policy. So I went, oh, I haven't traveled much around. Like International health's not really my drive. So I fell into healthcare management and policy, which was effectively the business of healthcare. And for someone that likes math, that actually works out quite well. So I did that as my undergrad degree. And the other part of, I think that was my the kid of the immigrant being successful part of it. But then the other part of it, which was my sort of religious background, I didn't really realize, but Georgetown is actually a Catholic Jesuit institution. 
and I promise I didn't know this the first week that I was at university, Liv. So I caught myself as a young Muslim girl growing up in a post 9-11 world, having gone to a Catholic Jesuit institution for the next four years. Wow. And I had to take a step back and I went, what do I get myself into? This is just all sorts of everything that I just don't understand. Anyway, long story short, that actually got me really interested because Georgetown was a place where interfaith dialogue was so widely accepted. It was one of the central kind of principles of the Jesuit tradition. And what it meant was that I could actually very freely and openly bring together my interest in healthcare and the business of healthcare with how sociocultural factors or the ethics of medicine come into play. And that was really fascinating. And I really started to look at healthcare ethics. We had a class on that. And there was one where it, I learned about Big Bad Pharma, the most unethical of the healthcare industry, as we would, yeah. as I would have said at that time. And then graduation came upon and I went, okay, what do I do now? And I wasn't ready to let go of that ethics and healthcare sort of lens. So I actually applied and got into a master's program that allowed me to study Islamic studies for two years and then go off and study whatever I wanted in the humanities. So I actually moved to London after I graduated, did that two-year degree in Islamic studies, and then actually went to the London School of Economics and did my master's in international health policy. And what I loved about that actually was the fact that I didn't have to choose. I got to pursue both tracks and in a way be true to who I was as the immigrant kid that's doing the medicine and in the healthcare field, but also someone that is conscious of who she is in the world and the fact that I can't change the fact that I am a female. I can't change the fact that I grew up Muslim in a Muslim household. But what I can do is actually marry the two seemingly different concepts in a way that's actually fascinating for people. So I went on to learn about the halal pharmaceutical industry in Malaysia and the different ways that we look at pharmaceutical ethics. And that actually got me thinking, if you can't beat them, you should really join them. But I ended up working in pharma for a bit. I actually joined for Pfizer's market access team, had one of the most incredible bosses I've ever had in my lifetime, taught me loads. And he was really great about telling me that you can bring together seemingly different concepts. I think that was a mantra and a theme that kept coming into my life was I kept being told initially in school or in other places, we have a one subject and another subject and the subjects don't come together. And I always challenged that. And I said, but why not? And it was mentors like my boss, Rafe at Pfizer, that really said, no, do what you want. Bring the two together. Or in my master's program where it was, yeah, you learn both and you bring them both together. And actually, that's where I started my journey in consulting later on, working in life sciences strategy. And now as the head of consulting at Impatient House, it's always been about let's bring together disciplines, let's bring together ideas, let's bring together parts of the industry that don't work together normally or that never get the opportunity to cause ruckus together, as I would say, because because that's what makes it fun and that's what makes it exciting and that's what makes it enjoyable as well. So I think that's been a kind of trending path in my lifetime, if you will. And it really did start back early days of my mom saying, well, you've got to do something in healthcare and me going, but I'm also Muslim. What do I do about that? Uh, so there goes that. It's so fascinating, though, and it's so true what you say about this. Two things that can sometimes seem completely unrelated. It's fascinating to see what you can do when you do bring those together. I was listening to one of Stephen Bartlett's podcasts recently, and he was talking about skill stacking. So connecting two completely different things and bringing them together and Steve Jobs went and did a, a typography yeah. course. So all of these Ooh. things that is that skill stacking that you can do that can complement something. And on the outset, you might think something's completely unrelated. Tell me more. So it was really fascinating, obviously, your coming growing up as a Muslim girl, like you say, in the era post 9-11, it seems you were dealing with that conflict of almost feeling that you needed to hide being a Muslim, but being proud of being a Muslim. And at the same time, learning about your culture at a time when there was so much 
anger around the world, particularly in parts of the States. Tell me a little bit more about that, because that has obviously shaped so much of what you do now and who you are. Totally. I think I belong to a liberal Shia community called the Ismaili community. And growing up, it was all about sort of... (laughs) I guess for an eight or a nine-year-old, knowing the word esoteric faith, that term, it might seem a bit odd, but that was really a lot of what we learned. I would go to, we would have like religious classes on Saturdays and you learned about how to be a global citizen. You learned about how to look at the interpretation of the faith in today's context. You learned about being an ambassador of your faith. These were all pluralism. It was a common term that we would talk about. And so actually a lot of that ideology about how you become connected to a globalized world, how you start to see beyond just yourself and how you can communicate, how you can contribute to a community was very much so a part of my upbringing. As you say, Islamophobia was quite prevalent in my teens. And so I kept finding that one of the things I longed for was a community that I could actually contribute to and I could share my my way of thinking, my, my background and have it be accepted. And that was that was a challenge, of course. I'm not saying that was all peaches and roses. But what I did learn was that you make your own community at the end of the day. I think for me, the com- if someone said, what are the communities that you belong to? One is, of course, the Ismaili community. I was born and raised in that community, and I still do interact and engage with it. But also the pharma community. I find that I'm quite... I'm a person that likes to engage with folks that are trying to challenge and push the status quo within pharma. More recently, I would say I identify with the global nomad community. There's a whole world of expats that travel around and become digital nomads. And and I feel at home when I'm with my fellow nomads. I will say that a lot of times growing up, I actually, I'll tell you, Liv, when I was in high school, my two closest friends were a Mormon find a Hindu. And and we would always joke, oh, the Mormon, the Hindu and the Muslim walk into the cafeteria together or whatnot, because obviously we weren't going into bars at that time. But it was interfaith was a part of kind of the bread and butter of how I saw my community and my world. And I was actually so grateful and felt really blessed and privileged when I went to university, because it not only was one of the things where I could then say, oh, this is normal. But it became so commonplace that I it really, for me, brought this idea of the sociocultural impact that that religion and culture and society, whatever it is, can have on everything else, whether that be healthcare, whether that be business, whether that be education. And for me, that was pivotal. Having that kind of click in my brain to go, there is something behind this. The fact that you've grown up in this type of society around these sorts of people based on who you are and how you're the same or different really impacts the way that you're going to do your finances. It's going to impact how you receive healthcare services. It's going to impact the ways in which you interpret art. It seems silly. Some people are like, Noreen, you're you're actually talking crazy. But I found that I could only actually have that when I became so different from my surroundings that I was almost forced to branch out and find these other communities that I could belong to. So do you think that's what drives you now in your work? Do you think it is that finding that something that and then building from it? Yeah, I think it's a great question because a lot of times when I first started off my journey in life sciences, I found it a bit stale. Can I say that? I don't know if that's even allowed, but I found it a bit stale and I thought, good Lord, this is just, why are things like this? Why is it just so blah? And I found that actually the things that people weren't saying in the corporate meetings or officially on email were the things that were driving the ways that we sold products or the ways that we sent marketing messages to patients and the way that medical affairs reviewed journals or articles. And I'm thinking, why haven't we actually considered that? And so I really do believe that even today, that's how I landed into innovation and design, because I think it was, I guess it's the get tall term for someone that's just thinking a bit quirky, (laughs) I will say maybe. It's, I think innovation and design is a huge, can be a big buzzword. 
But I think actually a lot of that comes into what we would call today service design or what we would call humanistic design or being future conscious. At Impatient, we take a framework that looks at speculative design and future-focused ideology and brings it into pharma. And it's revolutionary because people have never thought about pharma that way. But to me, it's almost, why wouldn't you? If no one's thought about it, that's why we should do it. And so I do think that actually a lot of the ethos of the way that I like to work as a person, but also I'm grateful that Impatient kind of has that sort of vision as well, means that I have the liberty and the freedom to never be bored at work because I always get the chance to just wind people up or, as I say, cause ruckus or do whatever so that we're actually just not even just pushing the envelope, but really getting quite zany and unconventional in pharma because maybe, just maybe, that will mean that we move the 1% or the 2% in terms of progress. But you can't, what's the phrase? You can't, you can't see through the trees if you're in the thick of the woods or whatever it is. There you go. You've got to be outside of it to come back in and go, oh, there's more to this than just what I'm seeing around me. Yeah. When you talked earlier, you talked about the ethics of pharma and pharma being the big bad guy throughout your journey and to where you are today has how does it look to you and does your opinion on that change and at what point tell me about that sure it's it so as I mentioned when I first took this class on the ethics of healthcare, we did a whole session on the ethics of pharma and I walked out of that class going Pharma is big bad wolf. We will, I will never work for pharma. They are so just awful. And they are an institution that cannot be changed and shan't be changed. And we should just topple them all over. And then, as I mentioned, I ended up in this position where I was working at Pfizer. And so when I was interviewing for the position, I actually asked my boss, I said, how do you deal with the fact that you work in an unethical industry? And he was a bit taken aback. But as I said, he was a good guy and he, and he took it. Um, and actually, I was grateful that I had that experience because once I joined the organization, I realized that there's actually a difference between pharma, the industry with a capital P, and people that work in pharma. It's, it, sometimes I think we associate organizations or corporations and we make, we assume that the people embody everything that the organization does, right? Surely, yes, we follow sort of the vision and the strategy and whatnot of an organization, but people have their own value systems. They've got their own sort of ethical compass, if you will. And so I think it really took me a second to challenge myself and say, okay, it's not that the pharma industry is unethical because the people are unethical. It's actually that some things that happen in pharma mean that we're not being as ethical as we could be. And so how do we target that? Let's get the people who actually create the value systems of our society and the ethics of our society to change that. And so I think one of the things that I really focused a lot of my energy on early on um, was bioethics. It's mm -hmm. I've yet to see the fact that a bioethical framework would be a commonplace in a pharma company. There are some that have them and it's fantastic to see that. But I really think that's an area where let's admit it, AI technology and whatnot is going to take over. Have we even thought about the ethics of AI in pharma? I'm not sure. Ethics and AI is a bit surface level where we're having some conversations about that, but we're definitely not talking about, you know, what happens when the digital health therapeutic is, has a glitch and it's given the wrong dosage of medication to the patient. And then what is the impact that has on patients, on society, on the industry, on this whole element of trust that we talk about with pharma? Yeah. So it really, it took me a second to take a step back and go, okay, there is pharma, the industry, as it was, there's pharma, the industry today, there's pharma, the industry tomorrow. Those are actually three separate things. Then you've got the people that work in pharma that have their own sort of ethics and values that influence, yes, but they're actually separate. And the people 
you know, are really trying to do good or they wouldn't be there. And then I think there was this idea of, as I said, if you can't beat them, join them. Like, how are you going to make pharma more ethical, quote unquote, if you don't work in it to make that change? And I tried to do a lot of research and a lot of work into how we can start to bring in bioethical frameworks into things like genomic medicine, personalized medicine. These are all areas that are going to thrive. But is there a pharma company that's really putting that front and center? I don't know. Maybe it's time that we start poking that bear a little bit. And I think that's part of why and I continue to be in pharma because I continue to see that's an area that We've got a lot of work to do in. And hopefully with my background and with the things that I've learned and studied and been able to tap into, those skills will be transferable. Like maybe I can stack those skills one day, as you say, Libs. Let's see. So talk to me more about this bioethical framework. Speak to me like I'm really stupid and tell me what you mean (laughs) by it and what does a good framework look like in your mind if there is such a (laughs) if that's possible yeah yeah a very loaded question but the concept of bioethics really started I think I did a bit of research and it must have been between 50 and 70 years old and there's if you look up bioethics you can see that there's four key elements of bioethics so there's non-maleficence, which is not doing bad, the intent of not doing bad. There's beneficence, which is the intent of doing good, which are two separate things, actually. Then there's autonomy. There is the ability to make decisions. And then there's sort of justice. How do you ensure that, that you're doing it in a way that's fair, that's equal on the societal level? So those are four tenets. And there's more. There's seven principles of bioethics and all of that. But really, those four sort of key principles are the basis of how you do anything in medicine in an ethical way. And the one that I find the most fascinating of the four, where I think we've got the most headway to make, is non-maleficence. Because we can all agree that not even just pharma, anybody in the healthcare industry has the intent to do good. Beneficence is there, right? We have lots of access discussions and we're really trying to be just and fair as a society in how we deliver and retrieve medications or services and things like that. And autonomy, I think, is very directly related to patient engagement or HCPs being able to take care of their own practice or make decisions that are in the best interest of the people that they serve. So I think those three... There's almost a place where those three tenants like sit or fit within the existing value chain of pharma. The one that I don't think gets a lot of traction is the non-maleficence. It's the one where you go, no, I'm not going to do bad on purpose. Because I think that often gets muddled into it's not profitable, right? Or it doesn't make economic sense. Or how can we justify this? What is... How do we build a business case around this decision? And so one of the other reasons why I studied health economics was because I wanted to see what is the basis by which we're actually making these value decisions. And I mean, it primarily in most European countries comes down to numbers. It's economic evidence is is what we use today. And in very rare cases, and in some countries we're making progress, but in very rare cases, do we look at the social impact or the impact on productivity or the cultural impact that that has on shaping people? Because quite frankly, it's, you can't justify that into money today. It doesn't have a financial return in the short term. And so I think that concept of non-maleficence, and there's other aspects of non-maleficence as well, but that's really one where I think we need to, as an industry, start thinking about how do we set in the right frameworks in order to say, not only are we going to intend to do good, but we are going to actively try to not do bad. And what does that mean for us? What is the business case for making this decision? What is, how does that hit our bottom line? And I think that's one of the reasons why alongside the business of healthcare, 
I really wanted to um, and, and did study health economics in my master's degree because it was important for me to understand how people today make those decisions. What is the value case that they build? And I'll tell you right now, Liv, 80% of that value case is done with the numbers on the spreadsheet. It's done with money. And that is a tangible way of looking at the evidence. But then few countries, less countries, look at the social impact, the impacts on productivity of people, the impact on culture and legal, legal systems in the future, for example. There's almost this dearth of what is the impact on the whole and what is the impact on the future? And so I think those are two things that really sit close to my heart. And and it's important for us to be future conscious. We don't have to be always future focused. We don't always have to say, okay, this is what's going to happen to AI in the future. And so we have to accommodate to that. It might not be the right thing to do today, but let's just be conscious of that future and take society into account. And also let's look at what that means for the other parts of our society and our world today as well. If you ask me for an ethical framework per se on that, I don't have the answer, but I am recruiting and hoping that uh, maybe we can get some ethicists across disciplines on board to then tackle that question in the future. When we get the answer to that question, we definitely need another episode because it does, it fascinates me, <laughs> this whole, what is the answer to that? Good God, we're still learning so much. <laughs> we are in the very baby step stages of AI and where it leads us. There yeah. is so much good it can do, but we have to get it right. Uh, so, uh, yeah, yeah, I find it utterly fascinating. Yeah, good luck with that recruitment. <laughs> <laughs> I will say I, I attended a couple of years back, I attended a talk and there was a robot ethicist that was present. Oh. And I was like, he's the guy. We've got to recruit him. There's some titles out there that are a bit rogue as they might say but those are the guys that we need so i'm intent on finding them so maybe we tag robot ethicist in the let's episode do that. Let's that do get that. To i want to chat to these people <laughs> that you're speaking to 100 percent. noreen we've talked a lot about your journey to date and it's fairly obvious as we touched on earlier that that era post 9 11 you must have had all sorts of experiences with different bias in different situations. Now, let's start from being a Muslim girl in a Catholic university. Talk to me about some of your learnings at that time. Yeah, so I think one of the, one of the key things that, that I learned was that healthcare and that culture slash religion are universal concepts. And so for a time, as being Muslim, I was part of the Hindu Students Association. I was on the board, actually, point of pride. And I did that and I enjoyed it thoroughly and I embraced that opportunity. I was very privileged that the Hindu Students Association was very small at the time. And I just happened to be one of the people that would rock up Sundays at five o'clock because it was a time for me to reflect and to contemplate and to think about the week ahead and whatnot. And it it meant that I had this opportunity to engage with a different religious tradition that still had the same sorts of ideas. It was the concept of reflection, of meditation, of mind, body, soul, of mental well-being, of physical well-being, of social well-being. There was an element of we would have the puja, the prayer, and then we would go out for dinner together. And it allowed us to have all of those aspects of health and well-being be encompassed in one. And the more that I engaged with these different religious traditions, and I ended up going on to be president of the Interfaith Student Association because I genuinely just loved it so much, the more I realized at the end of the day, we're all just people and we all, whether it's your religious background or cultural background or social background, whatever it is, you're still leading to that same North Star, if I can use that consulting term. Like, you're still going towards this balance of mental well being, physical well being, emotional well being, social well being. And what is it that means for the world of health? So, I think it was really an eye opening experience. I also, I actually wrote my university admissions essay on this topic. Again, having no idea that I was going into an institution where interreligious dialogue was a key tenant. 
But in growing up, actually, I wouldn't tell people that I was Muslim. Until I was about 18, I told everybody growing up that my parents were from India. And if people really probed and asked, once you say you're from India, they in the South assume you're Hindu. But in case there was any avoidance of doubt, I would just tell people I was Hindu. I really did because it was easier. It was easier to kind of blend in and go, yep, I'm just like you. Don't worry. And so I think it was really this idea of, okay, how are you going to take ownership and charge of who you are, how you fit into your surroundings that, that I actually wrote my admissions essay on. It was just about, I met a Hindu girl and she said, oh, do you want to come to this like religious festival with us? And I figured out that she assumed that I was Hindu and not Muslim. And so I had this like whole dilemma of do I or do I not tell her who I really am? And I, of course, did tell her and we ended up being friends and whatnot. And that's what got me into university. So in case anybody wants that college admissions essay, you can take that little prompt. (laughs) (laughs) But I think it was actually like self-awareness of the fact that there were parts of my identity that I did have to hide. And we still do, right? Live there sometimes where I just won't tell people that I'm Muslim because especially in Muslim-majority countries, the fact that I'm not veiling or the fact that I will still wear clothes that are not completely covering is just blasphemous from a cultural perspective, but not from a religious perspective. And I think there's a huge divide there. So there are parts of my identity that I still do shy away from. It's natural. We all do that. But I think what it really taught me was you've got to be able to take the situation that you're in, assimilate as best as you can, but also take take your identity when you're ready, parts of your identity when you're ready to embrace them as you are ready to embrace them. And I almost, I felt a lot of guilt for a while that I didn't reveal that I was Muslim to people growing up or that I would say that I was from India. My parents are both from Pakistan. My grandparents are from India, but my parents are both from Pakistan. And now I, I do find that it's really important to say that. It's really important to say my family is, my parents are from Pakistan. I was born in America. And look, I'll be completely honest. There are times when I'm in the UK where my accent doesn't really hide it too well, but I try to avoid telling people I'm American and they'll say, oh, you're Canadian. And I'll just go with it because it's not necessarily a part of my identity that is embraced, let's just say at all points in time. So I really found one of my real like key learnings was it's okay to not have to be so open about everything at all times. And there's also not guilt that you should carry for that because sometimes society isn't ready for you to be embracing every part of your identity. At least in my case, that's what it was. And so I really did have to figure out where the fine line is, where the balance is and where people will be ready to accept me and how and what way. That comes with a massive amount of maturity, though, that you you can only have that level of confidence about who you are, I think, at a certain stage in your life. It's very personal, isn't it, for everybody? Yeah. And look, I will admit, I didn't expect to, I usually don't expect in a conversation to talk too much about my religious identity, because although it's interesting for me and it differentiates me, it's not something that I necessarily people, I necessarily want people to to look at me through the lens of, oh, she's a Muslim girl. That comes with a lot of preconceived notions. And so I don't necessarily say, hi, I'm Noreen and I'm a Muslim woman. It's not the first thing that I like to say about myself, but I think it's, (laughs) but, and also growing up, I was taught the two things you never talk about at the dinner table are all our politics and religion. And then I went to Washington, DC, the home of politics in America, and became president of the Interfaith Students Association. I was thinking, my God, I'm just really left, right, and center, just crossing all of the boundaries, aren't I? But yeah, I think it's, um, about politics it is an important religion. topic. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Um, Such a rebel. Yeah, I love it's, it. it's, it's been we've good. <laughs> there you go. So you live in Bali now. Mobile. Ah, yes. <laughs> How did that happen? Most. most growing up when I was about 16 years old my my mom had been sick all my life since I was about eight years old and when she was when I was 16 she decided to go back to Pakistan to receive treatment we had tried in for years in the states to find treatments and nothing had really worked 
And, and so she went back. It was a two-year treatment. And we were separated from her in that time. As I mentioned before, we were super close-knit family. So it really took us in very different directions. And because we had never really traveled much as a family, I'd never really seen much of the world. One of the things that I took from that experience was that home is wherever you make it, at least for me. And uh, so I went out of state for university. I was blessed that we had an incredible study abroad program. And so I went and lived in Spain for about six months. When I moved to London, I then lived in Jordan for a few months and have lived in loads of places since. So did a year in China, came back and been in London for a bit. And through all of those experiences, I really found that actually being a nomad was my identity <laughs> and a really important part of it. And it's funny to say, Liv, like this is classic case of nature versus nurture because my sister is the exact opposite. She will stay on her couch. She's got a position as long as she absolutely can until she's got to go take care of her patients and then she comes back to that position. And she always gets mad at me because she says, why do you always have to be traveling? Because then if I ever want to see you, I've got to travel and I hate traveling. <laughs> Whereas as I'm headed on a flight to Lisbon this afternoon. So <laughs> it's just really is a classic case of nature versus nurture. But, but I've really found that for me, being a nomad was an important part of who I am. And it keeps my curiosity alive. It keeps my search for navigating the world and its nuances alive. And so it's, I've officially, when I joined Impatient back in December, I became an, a digital nomad, if you will. I'm very blessed that because we're a fully remote company, we have that opportunity and I spoke to Paul, our CEO. And I said, look, I absolutely love you. I love this company. I love what you're doing, but I can't live in London. I'm sorry, I can't live in the UK. And he said, I don't care where you live and where you work. As long as you get the work done. I spent the first three months with my sister in California and then moved to Bali two months ago. And then I'm going back for two more months. And then the plan is that from there we will do Mauritius, Taipei and Costa Rica. So really following the digital nomad community and trying it out for a year, seeing what works. It's funny because oddly enough, I find that I am on a search for a home, for a place that I feel like yeah, I could live here. Bali is a great place, but it's not that place for me. But but there's lots of lessons that, that you learn along the way. And actually, it helps me be better at my job. It helps me be better in my life. It helps me be grounded in who I am a little bit more. Yeah, I've been, I've, I've had a blog for about 10 years now that I don't actually actively publicize. Here we are. Uh, it's called now. 19th and Nomad. There you go. Yeah, exactly. It's called 19th and Nomad. And it's been going on for 10 years now. And I blog about my journey through the different countries that I've lived in, the idea of home, where I, how I, how that affects my relationships, my family what is home to me and uh, I even there's one that I wrote on there called I date cities not people so um yeah I think, I think there's a there's a bit of a of an interesting way there but it's good for me my my sister as I said lives in California my parents live in Pakistan and so really as a global family which is what we've yeah. become it's important for me to have the ability to move around and still do my job but do it where I can also be close to my family if I need to be. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about Bali. I went, I did actually have my honeymoon in Bali. Thank you. I did, yeah, I loved it. I did actually love Bali. But tell me a bit about what it's like living there. So it's really interesting, Liv, because I find that, and I will say this, after living in the UK for as long as I did, I was a bit jaded because yeah. I find that as an American, I tend to be quite open and at least in London, people are a little bit more reserved, which makes sense. But I found that when I then moved to Bali, it was a whole new world. Every single person that you meet on the street says hello to you, whether they know you, whether they don't know you. There was a time where so I learned how to ride a bike while I was in China last year. And so I took advantage of now knowing how to ride a bike. And I went through sort of the countryside of Bali up in the north and from Kintamani all the way down. And we were just along this path, just cycling. And there was there were a line of kids. It was a Sunday. So the kids were off school. It was a line of kids and parents and grandparents just 
doing their own work, whether it be just tending to the home or talking to friends or buying fruit. And they would see us biking and they would just actively wave and say hello. And the kids are screaming, going, hi. And they don't know you and you don't know them and you're never going to see them again. But they're just so grateful that you're there as a person. And I found that people were just so human, so kind, so hospitable. And I actually asked one of my tour guides at one point, I said, why are people so nice? I don't want to take that as a bad thing. <laughs> it's amazing that people are so great, but help me understand why are people so nice? And he said, we believe in karma. Like Indonesia as a country is 97% Muslim, but Bali is 90% Hindu. And so you really have this mixing of Hindu, Buddhist, shamanist, like cultures and a mixing of religions to fit the Balinese tradition. And the concept of you being nice to a person and that coming back to you, it's not a fear. It's not, oh, I better be nice to you or you won't be all burn in hell. It's actually just, you should be nice to people because they're going to be nice to you. So yeah. why not? Why not just give kindness with kindness? So I find that's one of the things that I've really loved about my time in Bali. The sun and the beach never hurt, I will say that. But the other thing is the timings all year round, because it's on the equator, you're going from about 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. And people work from about 7 to 3, which means that you're getting up earlier to catch the sun. Yeah. It makes you a little bit more productive, I think. I've got the benefit of being eight hours ahead of London. So I do start work a little bit later at about 12, which is great because I can do a workout in the morning, meet, chat with a couple people over breakfast, that sort of thing. And I also find that generally the other nomads there are also a lot more relaxed. It's just this like life of hustle and bustle in terms of traffic is awful and there's lots going on, but everyone is just happy with what they've got. We were able to speak to some folks in the countryside who work in rice fields like every single day, 12, 14 hours a day, bending over backwards literally to just be planting rice fields in the rice fields and we spoke to it, some of them and we said this is really laborious work they're like yeah but we love it we love it because this is our land and this is our people and this is our family we enjoy it we sing songs we have fun yeah we're not we don't have a lot but we have enough and we're grateful for that and so I think it's a little bit of I think that's some of the lessons that I learn is sometimes it is just your less is more you're happy with what you have you're grateful for what you have and how can you channel that to be kinder to yourself, to be kinder to others, to be kind in the work that you do? I think sometimes we're quite harsh with our work. You know, we can, all this bloody email I've got to respond to and all this, I've got to finish this presentation in about two hours and then deliver it and got this project timeline to follow. And if we treat work like it was a person, would we be kinder to it as well? And so I think some of those People will say, oh, you've become a hippie. And maybe I have, but I think if it puts you in a better mindset, I'll take it. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm with you 100%. So I've got a couple more questions for you. The sure. first one, I want you to tell me a little bit about the story of when you joined Impatient Health, because we chatted about this on our pre-interview chat and it, yeah. it stuck with me. And I've pinched a phrase of yours quite a few times since about putting on your white man pants. <laughs> so I'll let you Oh, go. yes. But yes, yes. tell us a little bit about that story and that phrase. Sure, yeah. I was actually in China at the time working for my previous company, Accenture, in sort of life sciences strategy. And I was in Shanghai. So it was actually in the height of the lockdown that we had last April. And... I was just scrolling through LinkedIn. I knew that I wanted to continue working in innovation and design and in life sciences. And I just couldn't find a company that actually brought all of that together in a way where I could also help that company grow and that company could teach me different things. I was passively looking and all of a sudden I found this company called Impatient Health. And this really weird guy named Paul Sims will probably laugh at me when he hears this. He's the CEO and he was writing some stuff about how it's different and revolutionary and let's be challengers of the farm industry. And I thought, 
oh, this is odd of what I'm thinking in my head and no one's really willing to be weird with me, but maybe he will. So listened in on a couple of things and, and I thought, okay, let me maybe approach him. I don't know. I went back and forth. Do I message him? Do I not message him? Messaging the CEO of a company on LinkedIn, bit of a risk. I messaged the CEO of Nike when I was very unhappy with my, my shoe delivery and didn't get a reply back from him. So I thought, oh gosh, will he even respond? Who knows? And it was, and it was really at that point in time that uh, I had to challenge myself and go, Noreen, if you were not the brown Muslim that you are, like put that out of your head. If you were a white man, what would he do? A white man would just go in and message him. And that's exactly what I did. I messaged him and I said, hi, Paul, really like what you do. I think there's some collaboration here. Let me know what you can, if you can spare a couple minutes, let's have a chat. Anyway, we got on a call. I later found out, so Paul didn't actually respond to my LinkedIn message. And instead, I got an email from Tom, random guy, the CEO of our organization. And, and I thought, this is quite rude. He doesn't even have the decency to respond back to me and just pawned me off to some other guy. And Tom was very adamant on speaking. And so we spoke and whatnot and, and ended up doing the interviews with them. Really enjoyed the work that they were doing and wanted to be a part of it. Got the final offer for them from them and decided to join. Later found out that Paul actually never even saw the message. It was Tom that snapped it out of his inbox. <laughs> so I've forgiven Paul since. But, but it really was, I think there have been a lot of moments like that where I've resisted and said, oh, yes, I'm an extrovert, Liv. But at the end of the day, as a woman of color, as an American living in the UK, you have to take a step back and you go, oh, am I going to be too much? Am I going to rub people the wrong way? Am I going to be bold? There's a very fine line between someone being bold, being direct and having someone appreciate that and someone going, oof, too much energy. Oof, that's just a bit off-putting. Oof, gosh, she's too assertive. There is really a fine line there. And even when I was going to China, when I got the opportunity to go to China with my previous company, I actually was speaking on a global panel at the time and had the kind of head of the global life sciences industry reach out to me after the global panel. And he said, Noreen, you did some great work. That was fantastic. And I thought, oh, thanks. Really nice. What do you say to basically the CEO of, of the life science, of the global life sciences industry of a company of 750,000 people. It's one of those things where you're like, thank you, kind sir. It's like, Liv, if the king showed up at your house tomorrow and was just like, Liv, can I have a cup of tea? You're like, of course. I don't know. How do you deal with that? I sheepishly was like, thank you so much. And he messaged again and he said, you're a very eloquent speaker. Good God, this, I'm really unsure. Is it that I can take advantage of this opportunity and say, I'd love to grab coffee with you. Is it that I just put a thumbs up and I go, thanks, dude, moving on. And that was really one of the other points in time where I had to go, Noreen, what would a white man do? How would a white man respond to this? And I, I, a white man would have responded and said, thanks so much. Could we get a virtual coffee chat in? And so I did it, sent that message, ended up speaking to to a man who is now a mentor and a coach and, a, and a, become a very good friend, Stuart Henderson, still, still at Accenture, gave me the opportunity to go to China to get this experience. Oh. And so I think a lot of times when I speak to a lot of actually other young brown girl, South Asian women, they often say the same thing. Oh, but Noreen, I don't want to be too much. And often I say back to them, okay, cool. What about the white guy sitting next to you? Do you think <laughs> yeah. he would have done that? probably so what's the difference between you and him oh you just there's all these reasons to not reach out because of who you are because you've been told that you can't or you don't want to rub people the wrong way I remember one time I got feedback that I was too assertive and I've had to take a step back and go okay is it that I'm too assertive or that I'm just an outspoken woman yeah. you never really know and I think these conversations are the ones that so many women do have in the workplace now. And I was actually talking to one of one of my dear friends and my colleague Jess at work, who's the head of research. And 
Jeff is a great man. And I was talking to him about some of these challenges and kind of had the white man conversation with myself. And he said, Maureen, I'm so sorry. I've not been as supportive as I could have been. And first of all, Jeff is the biggest hype man I've ever had at work. He is a fantastic guy, very self-aware. But I think it was this thing of, he said, Maureen, what can I do to be better? Like, how can I actually uplift you in these conversations? Like, maybe what I'll do is when you've made a good point, I'll make sure to say, oh, Noreen, I really agree with that point. That's a really good point. And by the way, Jeff does all of this anyways. But just the fact that he then took the extra second to say, oh, I'm going to do that. And having that like awareness and that reflection, I think those are some of the tactical conversations that we actually need to have with people in the workplace because we talk so much about we want a voice we want to see at the table we want to be at the table we want to create the table all of that stuff but then we also know that men are a part of the equation as well they are the center they're the equal sign of the equation like they're the other half so how do we tactically go make how are we going to make this work? How are you going to add me to that conversation? And you need to strategize, don't you? You would do it with your girlfriends. You'd be like, okay, you bring this topic up and then I'll bring this topic up and then we'll get this point across. Why wouldn't you do it with your guy friends or your guy colleagues at work? And so I think it's, it, it, it was actually a beautiful moment where, where I got the opportunity to make, I felt had more of an open conversation about that. But, but definitely I would say putting my white man pants on, as you said, has gotten me further than I would have ever thought before. Um, and I'm grateful for that mindset. So if anybody else wants to think like that, I would that say do it. such good advice. I have borrowed it a few times since we first spoke <laughs> and I keep it with me. I do. So do you mentor people now? Yeah, of course. Throughout my journey, I've had loads of people that have reached out either from my sort of university alumni group or through my religious community um, or just through some of those. I run summer camps. So sometimes they'll reach out through there and go, I'm interested in healthcare. I'm interested in consulting. I'm interested in strategy. I'm interested in innovation and design. Or they'll just say, you're another brown girl in the big bad corporate world. Help me. And and I do. I have a few mentees and I love it. I love it. I think when I was actually interviewing for Impatient, Tom, our CEO, asked me what my dream job was. And I realized in retrospect, Liv, you're supposed to say a place where I can blah, blah, blah and give qualities. I just gave a straight up job. <laughs> I was like... I would love to be an executive coach for pharma C-suite execs that have just gotten into their position because I think there's a lot to be, there's a lot to upskill, a lot to learn. I want to be able to empower them to have the executive presence, but also to be empathetic leaders. Went on and on and he was like, why the hell are you applying to this job? But, but I think part of that is that I really do enjoy coaching and mentoring because especially for people that that I can relate to, because number one, there's not a lot of us that have cut into this industry. But number two, it doesn't hit at home as hard if it's not someone that looks like you that says that. If you could 1000% have a male that says, well, just get in there, just say it, just elbow your way in. And if then if you have a conversation with a female, they're like, okay, so this is how you got to strategize getting into the conversation, getting in your words. It's just a different tone. It's a different approach. It's a different mindset. And so I find that I've had between five and 10 mentees. Sometimes I'll speak to them monthly. Sometimes I'll connect with them once or twice. And then six months later, catch up with them. Or I'll think of them when a job opportunity comes up and help them out. But I really enjoy it. It's something I absolutely love to do. And also, it's a great way to just learn about what I don't know as well. I always say to my mentees, you're going to know a lot more stuff than I know. And you already know it. It's just a matter of me asking you the right question so that you can then shine. And people used to say to me growing up, what is your passion? And I would say, my passion is actually to help other people find their passion. And I still stick to that. I really do enjoy that. So I think it's it's been a great experience and I'm always happy to help people in the industry because I think that's how you move forward as well. Yeah. I think you should mentor men. I think more women at some point in their lives should mentor men who are leaders and CEOs or whatever. Yes. I think there could be very interesting Definitely. balance to bring about. 
And it's interesting that you say that as well, because I think there is obviously a difference between a mentor and a coach. But there is this perception that, you know, not I don't want to say it's a perception, but I would say it's less common for a woman to mentor a man versus a woman to coach a man. And just that slight change in the way that you're wording that, I think is again telling, right, of how we perceive the roles that people play. And so, yeah, I would love to, I'd absolutely love to mentor, not even just white men, any men. Yeah, <laughs> I think yeah. it'd be quite good yeah. fun. I would learn more from them. But, but yeah, I've not been approached yet. Yeah, well, lots of call to actions on this podcast. Yes. We're like we're trying to get the robot bioethicists. We're trying to get the white men on board. We're trying to do a lot. We are ticking boxes left and center. I'm loving it. <laughs> and, okay, so we are running out of time and I've yet to ask you the killer question that I have to ask everybody. Have you seen the Sliding Doors movie? I haven't actually. I'm so bad at movies that I've definitely not seen that one. <laughs> okay, it's, it's so old potentially before you were born probably but it's yeah so essentially the story goes Gwyneth Paltrow was getting on a train and she missed that train I think god it's years since I saw it she missed the train ended up going home when she went home she caught her husband cheating on her ended up living a life entirely different and the whole movie plays out the life that if she had caught the train and the movie if she hadn't caught the train so it brings about the question of what is your, do you have a pivotal moment and do you ever wonder what your life would have looked like had you not missed the train? Yeah, but it's funny because my sister and I chat about this a lot actually and it goes back to how I naturally always start any of my stories about travel, about home, about how I've ended up in the position that I've ended up is when my mom got sick and she moved back when I was 16 to Pakistan. That was really, as a child, that was a pivotal moment. But I think it actually opened a lot of doors for me in retrospect. My sister and I talk, we actually just had the conversation last week about what would have happened if we, if mom wouldn't have moved back and dad wouldn't have moved back and we would have stayed in Atlanta, <laughs> in the South. You would have still been practicing nursing. I would have gone to an in-state university, never had the opportunity to travel as much as I would have now, probably would have been married by now. Yeah. It would have been a very different life. And, and nothing is wrong with that life. But I think sometimes at the time, obviously, we were really upset that my mom had to move back and all the rest of it and that she was ill. In retrospect, things always happen for a reason. And it's almost like, rather than missing the train, I almost caught a train. Like it, I caught this train that took me around the world, that opened my eyes to so much more that is out there. And that gave me genuinely the opportunity to not just talk about being a global citizen, but genuinely being a global citizen. And, and so I think that was the one moment where I just was thrown into it. And it was you're on the train. You don't know where you're going. Let's just see where you end up. And there were amazing stops along the way. Each of the countries I've lived in, even just having had the opportunity to go to China, all the rest of it. It's funny because every time I end up going to another country, my parents always say to me, where is that on the map? They never know. Wow. But actually, through the fact that I end up going to these different places, my parents get the opportunity to learn so much more about these countries as well. And, and I feel I've written about this in my blog post way back in the day, but I do travel for my parents. I travel for my parents who didn't get the opportunity to do that, who don't have the opportunity to do that now. Because learning more about the world and being a global citizen and contributing to that is, is what I find my purposes in life a little bit. Yeah. I'm grateful to my parents actually for that opportunity because it meant that I caught not the last train, but one of the few trains that comes by to say, literally, the world is your oyster and wherever you want to go next month, wherever you want to go this afternoon, wherever you want to travel to next week, you can do it. You can try. You can learn. On that note, we're going to leave it there because I can't, I can't think of a better yeah. way to end it, especially knowing that you're going to Lisbon later on today. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. 
Noreen, thank you. I do feel like we're wrapping it up, even when I've still got so many more questions for you and we've allowed extra time. So there is so much I can talk to you about. But thank you for taking the time to come on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure hearing your thousands of experiences and just about your journey. Of course. Thank you for giving me kind of the space to to have this conversation and to share that with you. I'm really grateful. You're absolutely welcome. Thank you. And that's it for another episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't done so yet and you're enjoying the podcast, please do go and subscribe or hit follow. It makes a huge difference to me. You can now also join this Skill Cam as a member where you'll get invited to join recording sessions, you'll get regular mentions on the show and discounted or free tickets to any live events. To find out more, head to patreon.com forward slash thisgirlcam. As always, go to thisgirlcam.com to see this interview in print and to find out who my guest is next week. You can follow me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter and Facebook, all under This Girl Cam. Thanks again, everyone. Bye for now.